my name is Victor, and it's good to be here this morning. Um, like Matt mentioned, I'm a teaching elder in our presbytery. I used to be a pastor at Grace Chapel, and now I get to work with Indra. Um, thanks for sharing, Indra. I feel like every time, or just during that moment, I was like, I feel like I need to take my shoes off, because it was just like holy ground to just hear from you. So your voice is powerful. Um, thanks for sharing. I'm, I'm really glad I got to be here this morning. Um, but yeah, we thought we would go with the fire hose approach um, as we walk into Ecclesiastes. And so if you looked in your bulletins and saw Ecclesiastes 1 through 3, that does not mean the first three verses of Ecclesiastes. That means the first three chapters. And so hold on. Um, I'd encourage you to just keep your Bibles open. The, the uh, scripture will also be um, up on the PowerPoint. Um, and so, yeah, would you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1? I'll give you a, t- a moment to do that. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem... Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Can I pray for us? Father, we, yeah, we just silence our, our hearts and our minds before you uh, in this moment. We have your book Uh, open before us, and um, we have a lot of good questions, and I think um, you invite these, you invite us, and so Lord, our hearts are open, our ears are open, Uh, would you speak to us in Jesus' name, amen. So if you have little kiddos, you might be familiar with the name Ryan Kaji of Ryan's World. He's He's this YouTube kidfluencer. That's an actual term, kidfluencer. Um, and he makes millions every single year uh, reviewing newly released toys. Um, and companies will just send him their products so that he can play with them, test them out, and then give his opinion to his ginormous fan base. Well, the author of Ecclesiastes is kind of like Ryan, except that he's not a cute little 10-year-old boy, and his endgame isn't to impress you so that he can garner more subscriptions. Rather, he's this rough-around-the-edges king preacher who doesn't give a rip about what we think, and he's offering this hard-to-swallow sage wisdom in really complicated Hebrew poetry. (laughs) And he isn't reviewing toys. Um, What he's reviewing is life under the sun. And it's taken, he takes it up and he turns it end over end. And what he means by that, uh, life under the sun, it's, it's life without reference to any God or sort of transcendence to make sense of things down here. And the preacher, he's looked at it in every possible angle. And his conclusion, meaninglessness. But the thing is, is he doesn't want you and I to take his word for it. 
He will lead us on a journey and let us decide for ourselves. When we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, some of us wonder, like, should this be in the Bible? Like, should someone who believes in God actually say things like this? Vanity of vanities. All is vanities. We're like, chill chill it out, dude. Calm down. (laughs) The preacher, he uses this word 38 times in the book alone. And by using this word vanity, which it literally means like breath and vapor, um, the preacher describes life as meaningless and emphasizes just how fleeting it can be. And so why, why is life meaningless? Well, look at verse 3. Because the gain that we seek, it doesn't exist under the sun. We want our lives to count. We want to make a difference, but no matter how hard we try, how we manipulate it, how we finagle it, the preacher describes life, um, life without God, to make sense of it all, it never gives us like what we actually want. But the author of Ecclesiastes, he doesn't give up answers so quickly. Like I mentioned earlier, he serves as this reviewer of life under the sun, and he invites us into the angst that someone will experience when brought face to face with with life's meaninglessness. And then, after we've stuck through the cold, hard realism, then and only then does he give us a way forward. And so we'll ask this question together this morning. Why why is it hard to find meaning? Because I think that's the question the preacher is asking. And I think we'll find three answers um, from the first three chapters of this book. And so why is it hard to find meaning? Well, I think first, uh, you won't be remembered. And so let's look at that. Look at verses 4 through 10. It says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns All streams run to the sea, but the sea isn't full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye isn't satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. So the preacher takes up this cyclical and unresting movement of nature as a metaphor to describe our own toil under the sun. So just like the sun rises and falls without end, just like the wind flows around and around the earth, just like the waters pour and pour into the ocean but never seem to finally fill it up, so it is with us. The preacher says in verse 8, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. We can behold the most beautiful artwork, or listen to the greatest performance of T. Swift or Beethoven, but it will never finally fill you up. We wake up the next morning needing something new, 
The same is true for our own toil. When the preacher says that there's nothing new under the sun, he means that history has a way of confronting us with the same situations that those who came before us faced. So the questions you're asking, the longings you feel, the things that bring you joy or confound you, they're not new or unique to you. You are simply the next person in an unfathomably long line of people that stretches from the beginning to the end of history who've experienced the gamut of emotions, trials, and triumphs of what it means to be a human in this world. Aren't you glad that you trudged through the snow to come here this morning to hear this? Oh man, there's just so many smiles on your face. And the worst thing of all is is not that your life will ultimately have no resolution or novelty, but that you and the fruit of your toil, they won't be remembered. And so look at verse 11. It says, There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So a question for you. Do you know the names of your great-grandparents? Do you know their middle name? Some of you, you know, you met them, they might have held you as a baby in their old age, but do you remember their names or what they did for a living? Who their friends were or where they grew up, their greatest achievements or failures? I mean, the same will be true for you. It's a humbling thought, right? Like, I think we're supposed to be humbled because in our culture, it's easy to assume that, you know, you and I, we're the apex of history. We're wiser, we're smarter, we're more scientific, we're more politically correct, we're more woke, you know, we're more tolerant, more loving. But we stand on the shoulders of people who've come before us, right? People we don't remember. And the same will be true for you and for me. So why, why is it hard to find meaning? Because in life under the sun, you won't be remembered. But not just that. Next, the preacher invites us into his own search for meaning. And we find that in life under the sun, you also won't ever be satisfied. <laughs> and so look at verses 12 through 18. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked can't be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So the preacher, he starts off his search with wisdom, and verse 15 It's saying that we are limited. We can't override our God-given limitations. Even when it comes to our search for wisdom, we can't know what we we weren't meant to know. We can't make something straight that was crooked, right? And so look at verse 16. It says, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he 
who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So verses 16 through 18, they're saying that even when we do acquire great wisdom, look at what it does. It just makes us sad. (laughs) And so I think of how this applies to my own life. So my wife and I, you know, you know that I'm a therapist. Like we, we both have master's degrees in counseling. Woo! That's awesome. Cool. I have a piece of paper that that makes me look cool. But you think that this would lend itself to an unendingly thriving marriage. You know, every night we just cuddle by the fire and we, we hear each other perfectly. And, and, you know, I'm always like there for her when she needs me. But actually having a counseling degree has made us more sorrowful as a husband and wife. Because we know what good communication looks like, but sometimes stuff gets in the way. And the fact that we know what we need, but can't get it, 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 it only enhances our sadness, right? So wisdom won't satisfy. So where does the preacher turn next? Look at the beginning of chapter two, the first three verses. It says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and a pleasure. What use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So the preacher becomes a playboy and plunges himself into folly. Every pleasure he craves, he satisfies. Yet somehow, all the while, his heart still guides him with wisdom. And then in verse 4, he goes from playboy to CEO. So verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. So he builds this empire, this little little world where he rules over all. Houses and pools, plants, herds, flocks, men and women. He gathers all sorts of wealth. He tests everything under the sun that promises to satisfy alcohol, art, nature, Money, possessions, music, sex, affirmation, work. And at the end of his search, his plunge into folly and pleasure and empire building, what does he conclude? Look at verse 11. All was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Man, in his search for within wisdom and folly, he couldn't find anything that satisfied him. 
And then in the rest of chapter two, you know, the preacher, he kind of drives the final nail into the coffin. It might seem that if one had to choose, that the search for satisfaction and wisdom was far more noble than plunging yourself into folly. But he says, at the end of the day, the same thing happens to both, to both the wise and the foolish. They die. They die. They go into the ground. So look at verse 16, how the wise dies just like the fool. And someone else, oftentimes not of our own choosing, takes over what we have, have worked so hard to gain. Verse 21, sometimes a person who's toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. And so if that's the case, what does it matter? What does it matter? <laughs> um, but at the end of chapter two, the preacher, he kind of lets us behind the curtain a little bit. So why don't wisdom or pleasure satisfy us? Look at verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? He says that all of these things, whether wisdom or the pleasurable enjoyments of life, they're from the hands of God. The, the issue is that when we don't acknowledge him and, and the fact that they're given to us, when we look to them to do things that they were never meant to do, we look to these created under the sun things to satisfy us us, and in doing so, we spoil any chance that we had to like actually enjoy them. And so our culture, it's, it's obsessed with the life hack, right? Um, and to hack something, it means to use it to accomplish a goal that it wasn't originally intended for. And, and one that came to mind as I was thinking about this is in our home um, recently, we've, we've been using a muffin tin to serve our children lunch. <laughs> Some of you parents are like, yes, that's brilliant. Or yeah, I've done that. Like I've been doing that, Victor. Um, and, and so you put the cheese in like one little container. You put the beef jerky in one. You put the olives in another container, right? And it creates this sense of novelty and it keep, keeps the, the toddler rage at bay for a second so that, that we can all enjoy a meal together, right? And the idea is that, of the hack is that we, we create, we, if we get creative enough, if we think outside of the box enough, we can finagle something that helps us cheat the system in the name of efficiency or comfort or frugality, right? The issue is that you can't hack life under the sun. Ecclesiastes tells us that it's impossible to find what will actually satisfy us in a world with stuff that never promised to do so. So when we try this like square peg in a round hole method, we're still left with a hole in our hearts that longs to be filled. The preacher of Ecclesiastes tells us that we have to follow that longing outside of this world to the one who can actually satisfy us. And so enjoy the ordinary gifts that God has given to you. Friendship, laughter, 
work to do, warm clothes, homework to finish, a body that can run and lift or do yoga, coffee or tea by a fire pit with deep conversation. But don't look to these things for something they were never designed to give. It's what I love about the Christian faith. It doesn't curse or promise to rescue us out of this world. It actually affirms the goodness of what God has made, his love for it, his desire to reconcile all of it to himself. While at the same time being just very honest that it's not going to fill you up. It's not going to satisfy you. So why is it hard to find meaning because in life under the sun, you won't, be, you won't be remembered and you won't be satisfied. And if that wasn't sad enough, the preacher reminds us that we also won't have control. And so look at the beginning of chapter three with me. It says, for everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. This little section of Hebrew poetry, it takes our guard down as we're caught up in its repetition, right? A time, a time, a time. You know, I think we can recognize that our lives are made up of these seasons. You might find yourself in one right now. The haunting thing for some of us is the question of like, who governs which season we're in? If we're honest, these seasons, they serve as kind of like the background music to our life, a playlist of tunes that we don't often get to choose. I mean, last Monday, last Friday, you thought that you were gonna get up and go to your jobs, or that your kids were going to go to school. Didn't happen. (laughs) That didn't happen. And you had no control over that, because there were 12 inches of snow blocking you from from getting in your car and, and easily pulling out of your driveway. You know, we have no control. And the preacher confirms that in verse 10 through 11. Uh, It says, I've seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So we have this sense that the beautiful moments of our lives are woven in and through this tapestry that stretches on from the beginning of time to its end but we're never able to see the whole picture. We're created with this, like, this nearsightedness. I, I, I almost picture us like at Memorial Stadium and the huge screen, like we're, we're like two inches in front of it, right? 
And all we can see in front of us are just those like blurred out pixels, but we know that it stretches like infinitely from our left to our right. I think it feels that way. We weren't made to have limitless knowledge about why things happen the way that they do and how the everyday moments of life fit into this like larger arc of human history. And if this is true, it goes against the grain of what's like so important to our modern culture. Think about your, th- like your top three Instagrammers or authors or TikTokers. Think about some of the textbooks that your professors ask you to read. What are they trying to convince you of? I think that the belief, the message that you and I are steeped in, bombarded with every day is this. You can be whoever you want to be. You have control over your life. And I think when we take that into the world, like it takes five minutes for us until we get like pretty frustrated, right? Because I think we're, we're confronted with how little control we actually have compared to what we're told that we have. And so, how are you guys doing? This is only the first three chapters of Ecclesiastes. There's nine more to go. <laughs> but here at the end of chapter three, the preacher, I think he like lets us come up for air. He gives us clues, clues to how we can find some meaning. And we'll end here. So look at verse 13. It says, Everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And so, yeah, you won't be satisfied under the sun, but when you consider the givenness of these ordinary gifts of life and you let them kind of turn your eyes upward to this generous God who, who gave you all of these beautiful things, and not just that, who gave you his son. He didn't just give you single origin coffee or like fleece-lined pants. He gave you his son who lived and died for you. And then look at verse 15. It says, That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So yeah, you won't have control. You won't be remembered under the sun. But in in Jesus, God won't forget you. He won't forsake you. He's written every single day of your life in his book. He's, He's bottled up every single tear. So that your life, with all of its very simple, ordinary moments, all of its unseen acts of faithfulness and loving others more than yourself, they can actually have meaning because they're planned out. They're seen, remembered by him. And so friends, lift your heads. Let the vanity of life under the sun, you know, drive you in desperation to this God who in Jesus loved you died for you, rose from the grave, defeated death so that your life wouldn't be meaningless. It wouldn't just be this vapor, this breath that comes and goes, but would count, would be beautiful, dependent on him, and ultimately point our really sad world to him too. Amen. Let me pray. Um, Father, yeah, just thank you for the hope uh, that you give us in Christ. And that you're not afraid of of kind of showing us where the end of uh, secularism and realism can take us. You'll let us kind of stare the 
the blackness, the emptiness of life without you in the face. And you'll let us choose. I think you're such a gracious, um, respectful, kind God. Um, you don't force us like into your hand. And I just, that makes me want to follow you even more. And so Lord, as we just look um, and walk through this journey with the preacher in Ecclesiastes, I pray for, um, yeah, just a sturdier faith and for a space for our questions to land. Um, yeah, thank you that you're that kind of God, um, that your true wisdom, uh, true life that will satisfy us. Um, we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.